Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. Shalom, Evan. I'm Eli Koaz. And we have with us today... The legendary... The one and only... Shalom. Shalom. It's Aaron Weinberg. Oh, Aaron! Aaron, of course, is our government relations manager based in Washington, D.C., under normal circumstances. Yes, under normal circumstances, uh, I am uh, safe and healthy here in Evanston, Illinois, with my parents, um, but happy to be joining you and working virtually in Washington these past few weeks. So on Tuesday, Israel Policy Forum hosted a video briefing as part of our Annexation Watch briefing series with Congressman Ted Deutsch of Florida. Um, So for this episode, we're going to put the recording of that program. But before we get into it, Aaron, could you give our listeners a little background on context on what Congressman Deutsch had to say and also on your own work for Israel Policy Forum on the Hill and how Israel Policy Forum is engaging with American policymakers. Thanks, Evan and Eli, and, and really appreciate the opportunity to, to share with uh, you guys and our audience a little bit about our work. So um, for over a year now, uh, we have been in communication and working with members of Congress on the Hill, educating them and bringing our resources um, that, uh, that you've highlighted on the podcast many times um, about the implications and, and really security risks and, and dangerous implications of West Bank annexation, unilateral West Bank annexation to them to make sure that they're um, totally aware and understanding of the implications for Israel and Israel's security and also the implications for the United States and its national security interests. We've met with a variety of lawmakers on both sides of the hill and, of course, of both parties um, and continue to build uh, strong relationships to help impact and shape the dialogue and uh, make sure, raise awareness of our of our key policy issues. Um, and you know, we continue to have strong relationships with members of Congress from both sides of the aisle and continue to impact um, the conversation moving forward. Um, we've enjoyed for many years, uh, Israel Policy Forum has enjoyed for many years a strong relationship uh, with Chairman Deutsch. Um, and so for our first sort of public engagement on our webinar series with members of Congress, we're really honored to have him uh, come and speak to um, the issues having to do with the future of the two-state solution, the strong, robust, bipartisan um, U.S.-Israel relationship, and of course, the dangers of West Bank annexation. All of this is to say that Chairman Deutsch is one of the, as you'll hear, one of the great leaders in the Congress uh, on these issues. Um He and his staff, who are outstanding, have continued to be great allies and champions of IPF's policy and uh, IPF's values. And we are really honored to have him uh, on this first important webinar. Um, One other thing I'll note for our listeners is that uh, just since this uh, webinar took place, um, we've seen a number of really important statements from very high profile and important um, members of Congress. Right. I saw Speaker um, Pelosi had come out with a statement about annexation uh, just, uh, I believe, yesterday. And, and Justin Trudeau, of course. We're yeah, talking about members Justin of Congress, Trudeau. Eli, not members of Parliament. I, I, I know, I know. Come on. I mean, yes, Aaron is also a, a fellow Canadian, so you're yes, at the... I, yes. I am proudly a dual citizen, so while I cannot take credit for the Prime Minister's statement on annexation, I definitely felt a lot of uh, Canuck pride uh, for his for his statements. Um, but yes, I mean, in, in the past uh, really 24 hours, we've seen an extremely strong statement um, by Speaker Pelosi um, on the dangers of annexation and how it's no, not in the uh, U.S. national security interest. Um, in addition to a, a letter released by Senator Casey of Pennsylvania, uh, a very, very strong and um, extreme uh, a very strong and uh, deeply committed pro-Israel advocate in the U.S. Senate. Um, and, you know, it should be noted that this, this goes along with a, a long list of senators who have either in uh, individually written or in other ways spoken out against annexation or signed on to a letter um, warning of the dangers of annexation. So what we're really seeing is both in the Senate and the House a groundswell of action um, and warnings on behalf of members of Congress 
um, both to the U.S. and Israeli administrations about the really serious implications and dangers that West Bank annexation poses. I expect that we'll continue to see that, and I expect Israel Policy Forum will continue uh, to lead in informing and engaging these members of Congress um, on these really critical issues. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you very much. And keep up the excellent work. And without further ado, um, we will turn you over to the webinar with Congressman Ted Deutsch. The conversation was moderated by Israel Policy Forum Policy Director, Dr. Michael Koplow, and opening remarks from Israel Policy Forum Board Chair, Susie Gelman. Enjoy. everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and it's my privilege to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. Before we begin today's webinar, I want to ask all of us to take a moment of reflection to acknowledge the serious pain that we and so many others in our country are feeling at this moment as we continue to grapple with the racism, hatred, and violence that remain all too pervasive in the United States today. This is an inflection point for our nation, and we desperately need true leadership to help our people get to a better place. Especially on this Blackout Tuesday, let us all take a moment to think about what we can do individually and collectively to right 400 years of unspeakable wrongs and set our country on a righteous path of justice and freedom for all Americans. Thank you. As always, if you're new to Israel Policy Forum, I want to welcome you. Israel Policy Forum is committed to advancing a viable two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in order to ensure Israel's security and its Jewish and democratic future. In furtherance of our core mission, we have been raising the alarm about the threats posed by West Bank annexation for the past three years, educating American policymakers in Washington American Jewish communal leaders, and emerging leaders of the next generation. Now annexation appears ever more imminent. Just yesterday, Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz called upon the IDF to, be, to begin preparations for annexation. Just last week, Israel's coordinator of government activities in the territories warned of the potential for a violent escalation should annexation take place. The Israeli security establishment has confirmed that most coordination has been suspended between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. While we cannot forecast the precise consequences of annexation, the seriousness with which active Israeli defense officials are treating it should be proof enough that there is a grave risk to the state of Israel's security, as well as its democratic and Jewish character. In the face of this most serious challenge to our mission, and despite the current global health public health crisis, Israel Policy Forum has been ramping up our output. In March, we launched our Tuesday video briefing series. Our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, has doubled recordings and now publishes two episodes each week. Our growing young professionals network, IPF Atid, continues to convene regular virtual gatherings and is launching its own campaign against annexation our future Israel. The Koplow column published every Thursday by policy director Michael Koplow remains a highly sought after source of commentary and analysis on Israeli politics and the Jewish world. Through these initiatives over the past two months, we're reaching thousands of people every week, including hundreds who are being introduced to our work for the first time. Last week's webinar drew over 600 participants, and I know we have a robust turnout for today's presentation but we depend on your generous support in order to keep going. And I want to encourage you, if you've not already done so, to please make a contribution, particularly at this moment when Israel is poised to annex West Bank territory with the backing of the Trump administration. Your support is more important than ever. To all of our supporters on this call, thank you. For those who have not done so already, I encourage you to make a contribution to Israel Policy Forum at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. While we confront the consequences of annexation on the ground, we've also seen issues related to the future of Israel's security, the U.S.-Israel relationship, 
and the two-state solution being raised in the halls of Congress, that makes today's program particularly timely and important. We're extremely fortunate to be joined today by Congressman Ted Deutsch. Congressman Deutsch represents Florida's 22nd District, home to communities in Broward and Palm Beach counties in South Florida. Now serving his sixth term, he is the chairman of the House Ethics Committee and a senior member of the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where he serves as the chairman of the Middle East, North Africa, and an International Terrorism Subcommittee, making him one of the leading experts on the U.S.-Israel relationship in Congress. Ted has been described as a rising voice in the House Democratic Congress Caucus sorry, by the Washington newspaper Roll Call and was previously named one of the former, forward's top Jewish politicians to watch. Chairman Deutsch, before we begin, I want to thank you personally for being a champion of Israel Policy Forum's values and for all of your collaboration with us over the years. We at Israel Policy Forum truly appreciate your commitment to Israel's security, to a robust U.S.-Israel relationship, and to the two-state solution, as well as the friendship and critical working relationship that we enjoy with you and your staff, including Casey Custon, Brian Doherty, Josh Rogan, and Alex Roja. These issues aren't easy in the best of times and are often more challenging on Capitol Hill. So on behalf of Israel Policy Forum and all of us on this call, thank you so much for all you do for our country, our people, the state of Israel, and the pursuit of peace. I will now turn it over to Israel Policy Forum Policy Director Michael Koplow to moderate today's discussion. Thank you, Susie, and uh, thank you, Congressman George, for joining us. Before we begin, just a few logistical issues. A recording of this briefing will be posted to our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, following the conclusion of today's program. We also encourage audience questions for our speaker, which we will make time to address in the latter half of the program. So if you are joining us on the Zoom app, uh, you can type a question in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. And if you are calling in rather than using Zoom, you can email your questions to info at ipforum.org. Uh, now to today's conversation. Uh, so for, uh, first of all, Congressman Deutsch, thank you again for joining us. And um, first of all, how, how are you doing amidst all the craziness? Uh, well, Michael, thanks. Um, thanks for inviting me to participate uh, on the webinar. Um, we're, we're doing okay. I, obviously, it's been a really challenging time for, for all of us. Um, as we've grappled with this global pandemic and, and obviously the news um, over the past few weeks, uh, but I think certainly since, uh, since the, the horrific tragedy and the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis has, um, has met, made things uh, all the more challenging. Uh, but what I've found throughout is that these sorts of opportunities to come together uh, to, to talk through issues that really matter and, and to, to bring the community together um, in some ways matter more now than ever. So I'm, I'm grateful. I, uh, I appreciate, Susie, the, the nice words and especially the acknowledgement of my staff. Um, I value IPF as a, a resource and, and Michael, you and Susie have always made uh, IPF so accessible to members of Congress and to our staffs. And we've spoken a lot, um, many times in my office at length about a lot of these issues, but I, I'm pretty sure this is our first public discussion so I'm actually really looking forward to it, a good, good thoughtful exchange. And, and again, I really appreciate the opportunity and I hope that, um, uh, I hope that you and Susie and everyone on the call is, is doing okay at this really tough time. Thanks, and, and of course, we, uh, we appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion in, in public as well. Um, so, you know, let's, let's, let's start off from a, from a, a 30,000 foot level. Um, Given your position as chair of the Middle East and North Africa subcommittee, you are a leading voice in Congress on the U.S.-Israel relationship. Can you talk about how you see the current state of U.S.-Israel relations, especially in light of the political instability that has consumed Israel over the past year with three elections, the upcoming American election, and, and of course the COVID-19 pandemic that impacts things both here and there? Uh, Sure. We'll, we'll just start with that. Um, uh, of course, I'm, um, look, I think we, we've got to start by recognizing, as, as I just referred to before, the, uh, the real challenges and, and the uncertainty that exists all around the world now. And, um, and I, I, I would 
just point out that a lot of what we're seeing now uh, in the middle of a global pandemic it, are the, the result that really the implications of a world that um, that, that doesn't have uh, American leadership leading the way at the table all the time. This is not a political statement. This is an observation on the way that President Trump has has chosen to lead, withdrawing most recently from the World Health Organization in the midst of a pandemic. And um, America, I think, is I, it, it's best for the globe when America is a guiding and principled force. And and the response to COVID nineteen has um, has unfortunately, I think laid bare some of the uh, challenges in the U.S. credibility now around the, the globe. And so that's big picture. And then you add to that the political instability in Israel uh, over more than a year. And and it's natural that given everything that's going on, people are looking at every relationship and they're asking questions about every, all, every relationship. But that's why, that's why, frankly, I continue to remind everyone uh, why the U.S.-Israel relationship has been historically not only strong, but why it's of critical importance to our own interests as well. I mean, we can acknowledge, and I think it's, it's okay to acknowledge the relationship has has evolved just as Israel has evolved, and we should look for ways to enhance the relationship um, through this this um, this process. But I mean, Israel's a thriving nation, and the relationship is now clearly about partnership and cooperation and. And we've got to look for ways to, to grow those areas. And uh, the, the the current conversation that we're having is a good example. I mean, Israel's a leader in biomedical research, and we should be working to harness that expertise together with American innovation to tackle the challenges of COVID-19. And just as just as we should be looking to, to harness Israel's expertise in, in humanitarian response and working together in developing nations, uh, mm-hmm. just as legislation that, that I, I passed in the House last summer would do. It's why there's a U.S.-Israel Energy Center. It's why the, the cooperation bills passed the House unanimously. Uh, our, I, I guess I, I just finish big picture. And America's commitment to ensuring Israel has what it needs to defend itself against security threats and existential threats is ironclad. And it always will be because when we defend allies and we defend democracy, it makes us safer. That's why we do it. And it neutralizes those forces in the world who wish to undermine American values um, all around the world. So that's that's how I'm approaching the, the relationship and the issues at, a, at, a, uh, at that 30,000 foot level. And I mean, as we go forward, obviously, there are lots of specific issues that we deal with on a day to day basis. And 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 the the focus now on on the contemplated annexation, but I, I think it's rem- it's important to remember those those big picture items as we go on. Sticking sticking with big picture items for for a moment, let's talk a little bit about um, the relationship to Israel, uh, specifically in in Congress. We've seen a number of policy moves in the Israeli Palestinian arena in the past few years that have divided Congress, whether it be the Trump administration's refusal to release congressionally appropriated aid to the Palestinians, or a conversation among some on the far left about conditioning aid to Israel, or an attempt by some to politicize Israel and and force out of context votes through procedural motions on the House floor, and and plenty of other things that have been um, divisive and controversial over the past few years. What do you make of these uh, these moves generally to the extent that that they're part of a, a pattern, and what do you think it means for the future of the bipartisan relationship that has historically existed in the U.S. Congress when it comes to Israel? Well, it's historically existed and has benefited both countries. And as I, as I alluded to before, I mean, the, the hyper-partisanship that we see so often now, Michael, exists um, in, in so much of what happens in Washington. I mean, the fact that we're having this conversation now and wearing, wearing a mask to stop a public health crisis um, is in many parts of the country a sign of your political affiliation is um, is the best and worst um, example certainly the clearest example of that I mean I I abhor efforts to use Israel for political gain uh, and I think that any true friend of Israel does as well and we've got to make clear that there's no there's no room for that I mean do we have challenges sure like I, I don't pretend that challenges don't exist or that 
that some of the the voices, um, certain voices have gotten louder, but do I think that they represent a historical shift in bipartisan support for Israel? Clearly not. I mean, if you look at if you look at the uh, the votes that the House has taken this Congress, 398 votes to condemn BDS and in support of the U.S.-Israel relationship and a two-state solution, um, a unanimous vote on the legislation that that I authored, strengthening cooperation and security and a whole range of non-security issues. Uh, we had 221 Democratic votes affirming U.S. security assistance to Israel, which, by the way, there were four, four votes against. Um, but unfortunately, politicization is not, it's not limited to one party or the other. And it, and it starts um, at the top. It is, it's hard to remove personalities from this equation. And right now, uh, when the president of the United States, who we can have a discussion about whether any particular actions were, were good for Israel in the, in the short term, um, I mean, I, I, I know we don't all agree on this, but I thought moving the embassy to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's the capital, Congress authorized that years ago, um, and I, I supported that. But at the same time, Retaining bipartisanship is the most important thing for Israel's future. And when the president of the United States says that that some American Jews don't love Israel enough and tries to to turn the U.S.-Israel relationship into some sort of uh, some sort of political issue that he thinks will will uh, help him, and that ultimately ultimately seeks to divide the community, uh, that's that doesn't preserve bipartisanship and. Uh, and so that's that's a challenge, and it's hard to remove personalities from the last administration. And look, despite the historic levels of cooperation uh, and the largest ever security assistance MOU, I mean, how many stories were there about whether Bibi and and President Obama liked each other? Um, that's those are some of the the challenges that we've we've got in continuing to to focus on. Bipartisanship. Last thing I'll say on that, though, it is again just a reminder that uh, that the U.S.-Israel relationship and the bipartisan nature of that relationship is what what makes uh, Israel strong. And those who have worked to to try to weaken that that bipartisanship uh, do so in a way that not only not only hurts uh, hurts Israel and ultimately I think Israel's security, but it, it hurts the United States. It's damaging the U.S. security interests as well. And I know we'll have more time to talk about that. So um, let's let's talk a, a little bit uh, about some policy specifics and uh, particularly, particularly the uh, issue that's been on the table since January, which is President Trump's peace plan. Um, when it was released, it elicited strong reactions across the spectrum um, from some who panned it as completely unworkable uh, to some who praised it as as the most realistic way forward, um, you know, I, I'm uh, I, know, I know that you have a, a more nuanced view of the subject, um, and so you know, talk a little bit about how you view the plan in total, um, how you see it as falling short to the extent that you do, and and how you view it as an opportunity moving forward to the extent that you do. Uh, sure. Well, Michael, you were one of the first people that I sat down with after the plan was released, and. So as you point out, you may call it nuance, whatever it is, I didn't reject the plan out of hand. Um, but I'll back up a bit. I mean, I, I tried, as chairman of the Middle East Subcommittee, I, I've tried to engage the administration as it began its efforts. I met with Jason Greenblatt on a number of occasions. I appreciated that he made the time to meet with me. Uh, and from those conversations, I, I frankly was often left hopeful uh, for what might come. We know that the president was clear at the beginning of this that he saw this as some sort of real estate deal, um, and others thought that maybe that kind of approach might work. Um, and and I was, I think, like everyone on this call, I was really surprised that for two years no details of the plan seemed to leak. And then it looked for a long while like like the we might never see a plan at all, given the political uncertainty in Israel. Um, so I was surprised when I got invited, candidly, was surprised when I got invited to the White House to preview the plan the morning of its release. Um, but I went, I listened to Jared with an open mind. And so 
here's where the nuance comes in. I, I thought, and we've talked about this before, um, I thought that uh, that the president, uh, the fact the fact that it talked about two states um, was not something that we necessarily expected. Then the president stood next to Prime Minister Netanyahu at the press conference. He talked about two states, um, which certainly seemed better than his one state, two states, whatever approach that he talked about before. So frankly, the fact that there was a, a right-wing Israeli prime minister next to this president endorsing a plan that seemed to have result in two states um, provided me with at least some basis, I, I thought, for going forward. But when you dig into the actual plan and and there are questions, real questions about, I mean, it's it, it goes back and forth. Michael, as you know, on the one hand, um, it, it, there are lots of questions about the viability of a Palestinian state that was envisioned there, um, and it, it could lead, there was a, real, a realization that it could lead uh, more to unilateral annexation. Um, and then we started seeing the response from the outside world, and despite all of the talk about this outside-in approach that, uh, that that this might yield better relations with uh, between Israel and its neighbors, um, we've actually seen uh, ex- exactly the opposite. I know we'll get we'll get more into that, but ultimately, the the plan. What's confusing is the plan envisioned at some point envisioned negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians, uh, and uh, it's been everyone's position that that that's how you get to uh, to two states, uh, but then we sort of fast forward to where we are at this moment and it doesn't look like that, that commitment exists. Um, in the mean, in the meantime, in light of the continued freeze on us assistance to Palestinians, it seemed like instead of negotiating some sort of deal that each side would compromise to reach, uh, the administration thought that, that it would, uh, it would simply provide assistance to Palestinians to, to make them satisfied with whatever comes of this which leads to where we are now, which is this, this really critical moment for the future of a two-state solution and what it looks like and, um, and the challenges that we've seen, um, as I've been clear throughout, unilateral actions on either side um, that make it harder to, to achieve peace in the long term um, are, uh, are not in the best interest of achieving peace. And I mean, I know we'll talk more about that, but that's, I think, how we got here. And, and that's, what we've got to grapple with at the moment. And I'll note, by the way, um, that your um, your uh, your focus on on the the two states in the in the Trump plan uh, immediately after it was released. Um, you know, this week there has been a lot of uh, pressure inside of Israel from from folks on on the far right um, against the Trump plan, precisely because uh, of of this of this two state uh, this two state agenda. Um, so. Of course, any discussion of the Trump plan is is also a discussion about annexation, uh, given given the way that um, that is part of the plan. And uh, over a month ago, Prime Minister Netanyahu and, and Benny Gantz signed their coalition agreement, paving the way for the formation of the current government. And the agreement specifically states that the prime minister can bring forward the agreement that will be reached with the U.S. on annexation beginning July 1st. And given that this is in the coalition agreement, this puts the U.S. front and center in the annexation debate inside of Israel, as according to the agreement, and, and certainly based on what the prime minister has said, annexation can only move forward with U.S. approval. Uh, and on top of that, uh, less than two weeks ago, Vice President Biden, whom you have endorsed, uh, spoke during a virtual fundraiser with the American Jewish community about unilateral action by Israelis and Palestinians and, and warned about the dangers of annexation of West Bank territory saying that, uh, that if Israel goes ahead with annexation, it will choke off any hope of peace. So when it comes to annexation, given the fact that the U.S. is now, whether we want to be uh, front and center in this debate, what do you believe the U.S. position and the U.S. role should be um, on, on this annexation question? Uh, it's a really important question. And, and last year, during, during last year's election in Israel, when when the campaign promises of annexation were being made, um, I joined with with some uh, longtime pro-Israel members of Congress in in, ta- in speaking out against unilateral annexation, unilateral action taken um, by uh, Israel or the Palestinians. And my my position hasn't changed. A directly negotiated two-state solution is 
a mainstream position and expressing concern about unilateral annexation uh, isn't extreme at all. It, it's the position of most of uh, of the largest cross section of the American Jewish community. It's it's a way to preserve Israel's uh, future as a secure and Jewish and democratic state. So uh, it's also the way to give Palestinian people uh, uh, the hope eventually for a state of their own and a, a, a prosperous and peaceful future. And saying saying that um, doesn't it uh, doesn't make it doesn't make one any less of a friend of Israel. I, in fact, uh, I say that as as a, a as I've said before, and I think as you've alluded to in my introduction, a great supporter uh, of of Israel and the U.S. Israel relationship. And it's because of that, and because I care so deeply about Israel's lasting safety and security, that that I wanted to have this conversation. That's that's why Vice President Biden said what he said. It's because of his deep affection and commitment to Israel that. He wants to see Israel prosper as a secure Jewish democracy. Um, for those of us, for those of us who have been around Vice President Biden for a while, you know that you don't you don't have to guess what his record on Israel will look like because there are decades of consistent and strong support to back it up. Um, but we also know that he's not uh, against expressing disagreement among friends. Uh, it, it's important to note, though, that the vice president has been clear that he'll handle these disagreements appropriately and that they, they shouldn't undermine, as I alluded to earlier, they can't undermine the greater U.S.-Israel relationship, especially on security. Um, we, we shouldn't let the U.S.-Israel uh, relationship be determined solely on this issue. It's about so much more than that. But we can't ignore, uh, we can't ignore this. And, uh, and if if it, as Israel decides, as they're thinking about moving ahead here, uh, it's important, I think, for us as supporters of Israel uh, to to raise some of these issues. It's not going to be easy for um, for all of us who uh, love Israel and care deeply about this relationship. But the the questions that we're rightly raising that this whole premise, Michael, I'll just back up for a second. The whole idea of annexation that that um, the prime minister says is set forth in the plan. Well, the plan, I know we, there are enormous challenges with the plan, but the plan is very clear that, that specific details of the Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement have to be worked out directly between the parties. Whether that's in the plan or not, that has long been the view of all of us. It's long been the view of, uh, of consecutive administrations uh, that, that only through a negotiated two-state solution uh, are you able to to ensure the long-term Jewish democratic nature of a strong and secure state of Israel, and uh, and so we should be uh, we should we should point out that there are a whole series of assumptions that that Israel is making um, going as as this annexation discussion goes forward that we we I think are right to raise. There is an assumption that. As particularly those of us who worry so much about Israel's security, uh, there's an assumption that as we're talking about the the need for security in the Jordan Valley, uh, that a decision to go forward is not going to imperil the peace agreement with Jordan. For if it did, that would actually be a huge step back, obviously, in terms of security. There's an assumption that's being made that uh, that going forward won't have an impact on the growing relationship between Israel and the Sunni Arab states who uh, who stand together confronting Iran, but also recognize all of the, the reasons to, to foster greater ties with Israel. Um, there's an assumption that the Europeans and, and the UN, UN which doesn't, which doesn't have a good record of, to put it mildly, in support of Israel, that, that in both of those cases, um, there's an assumption that there won't really be serious action taken, that they won't rush to to uh, recognize a Palestinian state on on uh, on property um, on land that is is currently now being discussed, um, th- there are just all these assumptions, and and I think the most significant, the last two I'll mention, Michael, and one there's this assumption that um, that go- going forward isn't with annexation isn't going to uh, create more security problems for Israel. I mean, Abbas. Again, and we'll have plenty of time, I think, to talk about the the challenges from Abbas and his lack of leadership and the unwillingness to 
uh, to prepare the Palestinian people for peace. And we're not, this is not a moment where there's, there's going to be immediately a two-state solution. But, uh, but if Abbas actually severs the relationship and the cooperation with Israel, uh, is Israel in a stronger position when it doesn't have Palestinians to cooperate with and providing security uh, to the West Bank, or, or does Israel want that responsibility completely? And also on the issue of security, there was a great piece that Ambassador Shapiro and General Allen wrote that pointed out that the borders as laid out in this plan, and we there's this mapping process going forward, but the borders may require so many checkpoints that it could ultimately require Israel to shift focus from defense of its northern border uh, and all of those Hezbollah rockets and Iran's goal to, to strike from there. Um, and so what does that do? And the last thing, Michael, that I'll just say on this is there's also this, uh, getting back to where we started, uh, there's the, the very real issue of um, the possibility of, of an action like this taking place uh, as we head into a, a presidential election. And, and I, I saw, I, I mean, I, we, we've seen some of the quotes about the need, the seeming uh, urgency of moving forward because uh, President Trump might not get reelected, that's not how to make decisions that impact both the long-term security needs of Israel and the long-term bipartisan support for the U.S.-Israel relationship. So all of these issues that I raise, all of these concerns uh, that that I think need to be clearly uh, on the table for dis- discussion, don't suggest any any antipathy or any um, any uh, outright. Um, uh, attack against any policy of Israel. They're all meant to make sure that we're having a, a full and clear understanding of so many of the issues that I've tried to raise here and that you've raised uh, about what this might ultimately do long-term to the prospects for peace and to Israel's security. Sorry for such a long answer, but there's just a lot for us to to be uh, thinking and talking about here. No, it's, uh, it, 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 it's, it's great. Um... Great, great analysis. You should, uh, if you ever decide you don't want to be in Congress, you'll, you'll, you can take my job. Um, so, you know, you, you raised the issue of, of the Palestinians, and obviously we've been talking a lot about uh, the U.S.-Israel relationship, but of course, um, you know, there's also a U.S. relationship with the Palestinians, and um, it's been one of the obvious casualties of the past few years between the cutoff of all aid to the West Bank and Gaza and, and the closing of the PLO mission in D.C., and uh, general hostility, hostility that I think um, seems to certainly go both ways between President Trump and, uh, and President Abbas and other PA officials. So in, in the current world in which we live, where um, we have very little formal relationship with the Palestinians remaining, and, uh, and I think as a result, uh, I would certainly argue few ways of, of influencing their behavior, how should the U.S. be approaching the Palestinians and, and attempting to uh, either reset or, or reformulate the relationship. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I'm not sure that that the current administration can reset. But that's. I mean, frankly, it's one of the reasons it's important for members of Congress to continue to have an open line of communication with Palestinian leadership. Um, I mean, when I when I go to Israel, uh, I also go to Ramallah and I meet with Palestinian leadership. Um, we we meet with civil society leaders. Um, you. I just I think it's critical that those relationships exist. Um, we on on a recent trip to Israel, uh, I, I took a group, a bipartisan group of members, to Augusta Victoria Hospital in East Jerusalem, so that they could see firsthand the impact of the administration's assistant freeze, um, and it was really moving uh, to see what what happens. Uh, when you cut off assistance and it impacts, in this case, the provision of life-saving medical assistance. And notwithstanding the issue that arose with assistance from the from ATCA, from the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act, which Congress fixed, I mean, the, the administration's decision to freeze all West Bank Gaza assistance, even the funds that went to NGOs, even those funds that were specifically exempted under the Taylor Force Act, uh, with bipartisan support, uh, still faced a, a lot of bipartisan resistance. That's why you saw funding restored in congressional appropriations bills with the support, frankly, of leadership from people like Senator Graham. Um, no one wants to marginalize the Palestinians from the process. You, you can't facilitate peace if, if, you're, 
if you're not talking to the the side you're trying to make peace with and and when when you propose a, a plan um, and coordinate only one side with one side even if that's our long-standing ally I understand how that's going to be interpreted that said as I said before the plan still contemplates a negotiated uh, a negotiated uh, peace agreement which uh, which seems even to be missing from the the discussions coming out of the Israeli uh, Israeli government um, I mean I'm I, I, we've, so we've got to look for ways to encourage the, the Palestinians to, uh, to come to the table, not, not throwing up our hands, not disincentivizing negotiations. Uh, that said, as I alluded to before, there's no shortage of blame and criticism to be cast on Palestinian leadership over the years. Uh, I, I passed a resolution condemning incitement. Abbas, as I said before, I think President Abbas is ineffectual. He's, he's not taking bold steps to prepare the Palestinian people for real peace uh, the martyr payments we've been talking about, um, I've brought up uh, repeatedly with the Palestinians directly. Um, the missed opportunities, obviously, everyone points to uh, to the offer from from uh, Ulmer in 2008. Um, all of that's well documented, and I um, uh, and I I just I think it's it's important for us uh, to to continue to keep all of this in mind. But we also have to be careful that Palestinian people aren't punished for political disagreements. And when there are real dire humanitarian uh, and development needs, um, the U.S. has consistently supported those on a bipartisan basis. And I guess, I, I guess the only other thing I'd add to that, Michael, we've, we've got allies and partners who can serve as interlocutors and, and who can play a really constructive uh, role, but it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And if we want our allies to work together toward common goals, um, that that requires clarity that um, that we value those partnerships as well, which is probably a whole different conversation, um, which we make it into into in the Q and A. But I, um, yeah, I will leave it at that. I, I'm sorry, sorry to. There's a lot to say here. Yeah. Um... So uh, I just want to remind people that if you have questions for, uh, for Congressman Deutsch, you can type them into the Q&A box at the bottom, or you can send an email to info at ipforum.org. Uh, and uh, I want to give the first question uh, to our board chair, Susie. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, Ted, for some really uh, timely and, and, and uh, interesting remarks. It's really helpful to hear your perspective. Uh, so my question has to do with the Democratic Party platform. As you know all too well, in previous presidential election cycles, there have unfortunately been fights within the Democratic Party over the language in the Israel plank of the party platform, as manifested by a nationally televised floor fight in 2012 and very contentious testimony and an amendment process in 2016 in that platform committee process. So looking to the end of the summer when the platform will be adopted, what do you expect the language to look like given Vice President Biden's recent comments on annexation to which Michael previously referred, do you anticipate or would you recommend that opposition to annexation be included in the party platform in this cycle? Oh, I, I, first of all, I would, Susie, thanks for the question. I would point out that um, I, I, I think it's fair to say there's not another issue um, at all, zero, uh, where people spend time focusing uh, on what happened and trying to interpret what happened on the floor of the convention rather than looking to what wound up in the platform of the Democratic Party. Only, only this one. And what wound up in the platform and what has always been in the platform is strong support for the U.S.-Israel relationship, uh, recognizing the need for it to be bipartisan, uh, stressing the importance of a two-state solution. And I think, uh, I think the best place to look for what should be in the, uh, in, in the platform uh, is what the one Democratic majority in Washington right now has already said, and that's the United States House. And that's uh, that's support for U.S.-Israel, uh, the U.S.-Israel relationship. It's support for a two-state solution. It recognizes the importance of, uh, of assistance to Israel. 
uh, and it opposes uh, the BDS movement. Um, Congress has spoken on that. The Democratic Party has spoken on that already in the House. And that's uh, I think that's exactly what we ought to see in, in the platform. Thank you. Sure. Okay. Um, the first question uh, is from Jacob Kornblue from, from Jewish Insider. Um, and Jacob asks, uh, Congressman, are you concerned that the current nationwide riots will possibly also lead to an increase in anti-Semitic violence and attacks on Jewish institutions? And do you see any similarities between Trump's both sides remarks after Charlottesville and his response to the current protests? Um, well, first, do I worry about, uh, do I worry about antisemitism? Um, I, I mean, we've, we've seen, I mean, all of the data before the, the killing of George Floyd, all of the data has, has pointed to a dramatic increase in antisemitism. Um, I've been on, I've been on other Zoom calls, uh, through the pandemic where, uh, with leaders, and I've, I've spoken to uh, to, to uh, leaders from Jewish community around the world who have told me that the expectation fully was that just as we've seen anti-Semitism on Zoom calls through Zoom bombing, and just uh, that that um, we should expect to see as as things start to open up um, an increase in anti-Semitism in the real world as well. So, do I do I worry about it? Sure, but not as a not as a result of, uh, I, I, don't, I don't worry about anti-Semitism resulting from peaceful protests um, uh, and, and calls for, uh, for racial justice. I, that's, that's not, that doesn't lead to anti-Semitism, uh, but I do worry about anti-Semitism that has continued to grow and that I think we need to be, we need to, to be prepared to confront. Um, as far as Going from uh, from where uh, from the the comments in Charlottesville. Look, I I don't I, I of all of the things that uh, President Trump has said, um, I I don't. Um, it's it's hard it's hard for me to to think of much that has been more upsetting than uh, than a response to, to white supremacists marching in the street, carrying tiki torches, screaming, Jews will not replace us and seeing very fine people on both sides. Um, so uh, look, we've seen, we've seen white supremacists spreading disinformation about COVID-19. We've seen white supremacists. Um, if there's a straight line, those white supremacists in Charlottesville haven't stopped. They've continued uh, perhaps their marching isn't entirely uh, isn't all outside now, but it's certainly been taking place online, trying to take advantage of of the moment to advance their own agenda. We saw the uh, just the news report about the fake tweet that came from a, a white supremacist group um, in Europe uh, as as trying to um, to sow discord and ultimately put Jews at risk. So, um, is there a line from there to here? Uh, certainly. White supremacists um, at, throughout the, the past few years have, uh, have seen opportunities to spread their vile and anti-Semitic and dangerous uh, rhetoric, and we've got to confront it every time. And you confront it by speaking out directly against, uh, against it. You don't I respect, I, I would also suggest that the way to confront white supremacists, the way to confront um, anyone who's, who's um, uh, speaking out uh, it is to confront it, and when what they're saying, it's not to threaten to send U.S. troops into communities. Uh, that's not the uh, that's not the way to confront anti-Semitism. We have a question from Bill Neiman, um, which is uh, which is reflective of, of a number of questions we've been getting. Um, which is, uh, we we agree that unilateral annexation is not the best solution. Uh, but how do you move forward with a negotiated peace plan when the Palestinians have rejected the Trump plan outright and a two-state solution requires someone to negotiate with on behalf of the Palestinians? Is, is there anyone to, to negotiate with? Um, what, what will be different 25 years after, after Oslo um, when over the last quarter century um, there, there has not been success? Um, well, I, first... As as we continue to to uh, the great thing about Zoom calls in, with um, 
with a chat function working is um, is that there's the steady stream. So I, let me just go back for a second because I, I don't want to leave. Um, I, I want to make sure that the people on this call understand that um, there is um, there is no one who has been. I, I don't think there's anyone who has been as clear about the need to confront anti-Semitism uh, as as the founding co-chair of the bipartisan task force to combat anti-Semitism. There's no one who recognizes the need to confront it wherever it comes from, whether in your own party or in the other party, whether on the far left or on the far right. So to as I scroll through the comments, um, that was not my suggestion. The, the fact that there's been an increase in white supremacy, uh, white supremacist activity is true, and I wanted to acknowledge it. Um, when there are those, uh, when there are those who uh, invoke anti-Semitic lies, um, they need to be confronted again, wherever it comes from. And I've, I've done that. And people on this call know that I've, I've done that. And I've been critical of, uh, of people on the left when they've used anti, uh, anti-Semitic statements. And, uh, and I've certainly done the same thing for people on the right. Um, it, it's, it's concerning, uh, when there is an unwillingness to, to tackle it, uh, on both extremes and, and to tolerate it, um, on one extreme or the other, because it can't, there's no place for it in terms of, um, uh, how to go forward? Look, it should be pretty clear that um, uh, that President Abbas uh, is not is is not someone who is um, uh, is one that's known to take risks. I mean, we've already talked about the 2008 Olmert offer. We can go back to 2000, but um, I, I mean, I, I look, Michael, you wrote a, a really good piece about. Um, something that you and I discussed that day after the plan came out, which is um, if you, if you don't, uh, if you don't like what's in this plan, then put out your own plan. The response from the Palestinians can't simply be to say, well, we weren't included and, um, and we have friends, some friends around the world who don't like it. And then today's story that, uh, that we're going to reach out to the Chinese and see if, if they can maybe come in and help us out here. That's, that's not the way uh, to respond, certainly not a way that, that gets toward the ultimate goal of meeting, in this case, the aspirations of, of the Palestinian people, which is what President Abbas, uh, I, I, I think, uh, would be most focused on. Um, if, there is, if there are challenges with this plan, and there are many, uh, and, there are, and you don't like the borders, and, which is understandable, and you have concerns about, uh, about sovereignty and and as as the prime minister pointed out the other day uh, places I mean, there, we, it's now clear there will be some places under this plan where palestinians live on sovereign israeli territory who who have who don't have um have rights and israelis who live in palestinian territory who um uh who will be subject to israeli law it's confusing um the, the president abbas has a responsibility to to do more than simply complain but to come and put out your own plan, tell us what tell us what you need. That's a point I've made with him directly uh, in in Ramallah with members of Congress at my side. And just to just to follow up on that one quickly, do you um, do you detect any any indication or uh, reason to hope that that perhaps President Abbas is going to um, change his position and and agree to engage with the plan or, or negotiate? Um. I have I have no indication that that's happening. I mean, again, I said earlier that when the what we we've all understood that, and we've all talked about for years, all of us probably, everyone on this call has talked about the need for the parties to come to the table without conditions, no preconditions. Well, um, the onus isn't just on on Israel, and no one no one is saying that. I mean, President Abbas has. A responsibility also to come and and when um, when last time I was in Ramallah and we had a conversation and I said um, I said why don't we have confidence building measures since that's what they were talking about what should those confidence building measures be and the response that I got in return was um, the confidence building measures should be uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine and uh, and a right of return for all refugees and borders on the 67 lines. Um, that's also that that's that's not that's not those aren't confidence building measures. That's not serious. That's 
that's a whole series of conditions which um, which make it impossible uh, to to um, to ultimately get to peace. If there's going to ultimately be a two-state solution, it's going to require uh, it's going to require good faith on on both sides. It's going to require that that uh, the president Abbas recognizes that Israel is um, is a, a Jewish state. That's again the kind of thing that doesn't seem to be too much too shouldn't be too heavy of a lift um but my the frustration if i seem frustrated frustration is that uh that there there there's been this understanding that there have to be negotiations there was a a plan put forward by the trump administration which while lots of details are problematic acknowledge that and now it looks like they're uh, we may be getting to the point where there will be unilateral actions taken by both sides that I worry will make uh, will make peace less likely, two-state solution less likely. But as we talked about before, uh, that that may also ultimately um, uh, do damage to Israel's security interests. Certainly, that's what some of uh, some of the experts, the, the former security experts, uh, Michael, that that. Uh, I know you interact with have said, uh, and that's what some American security experts have said. So those are those are the the challenges that we face. Uh, we have a question from Israel Policy Forum board member Tom Khan. Um, the the Trump administration put a hold on all but five million dollars of the seventy five million dollars that Congress designated for Palestinian humanitarian assistance. I think just last year. Um, given the desperate need for relief among the Palestinians, especially in the face of, of COVID-19, do you believe that the rest of this aid should be released and, uh, and is it enough? Um, again, this is, a, this is another, good, another good example where on the one hand, um, $5 million uh, was only released for COVID and it was released only for the West Bank. And um, do I think that uh, do I think that that the United States has a role to play in meeting humanitarian needs? Um, well, as I said before, absolutely. At the same time, uh, is it utterly inexplicable that President Abbas would take the position that uh, a plane full full of uh, supplies that are sent from the UAE um, to provide help to the Palestinians at this really challenging time that he would refuse them because the plane flew into Israel and he can't do anything that might uh, further normalize relations between Israel and, and the Gulf states, it's inexplicable. So should we be doing more? Yes. Um, should President Abbas uh, not use, uh, not make po a political statement that ultimately means important vital resources won't make it to the Palestinian people, um, he shouldn't do that. Uh, a question from Alexander Leopold. What are the greatest greatest risks to each of the United States and Israel of the relationship becoming increasingly transactional rather than values-based? Um, I assume, I assume the, 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 the assumption behind this is that if annexation happens, this will, this will become more of a transactional relationship. Um, well, I actually... I think that uh, the second part of that question is is the most important, and it speaks not just to, I mean, it speaks to an important moment that we're in as a country. Um, a, a foreign policy, generally, generally that is transactional, um, is is not one that enhances America's role in the world, and as as in the role that we should play as the. the the leader of the liberal democratic order in the world. Um, a values-based approach is the approach that, that, um, that we need to take. It's why I think values ought to be, to be a, a significant part of the way we talk about foreign policy, the way we talk about our allies, why it's, why it's so important to emphasize the U.S.'s relationship as being based on shared values and why it's perfectly appropriate for, have, for us to have conversations about potential actions um, by Israel uh, that, um, that we're trying to understand within the set of shared values that ultimately, those, those set of shared values that ultimately lead us 
um, we hope toward peace, which is what we all aspire to. So um, I, I, I think we need to work really hard to, to ensure that we, uh, that we don't become transactional. Uh, it's happening in other, in our relationships with some other countries. We can, uh, I think that's fairly obvious. Uh, and, and when you have a country uh, that is a good friend and close ally uh, with whom there are shared values, uh, that has to that has to be center stage. I'll say, Michael, one one last point about this. Um, people, and I I, I tell this to people uh, who um, some of my colleagues who don't who, who hear us talk about shared values in Israel with with Israel and the shared uh, commitment to um, the shared commitment to to democratic values and and you need to you need to see it close. I mean, the, the range of issues, you know this, and Susie, you know this, and probably most people on the call know this, but the, the range of views within the Knesset um, from, frankly, the far left to the far right is in some respects a much broader range even than, than the bulk of the United States House. And, and the debates are sometimes a little unruly, and, um, and it gets really challenging. And um, and that's not something for us to dismiss. I think it's something for us to embrace. And and if if we value that in our Israeli friends, then having differences of opinion on on certain policies, all working to ensure U.S. Israel, the U.S. Israel relationship remains strong, uh, I think uh, in many respects uh, is uh, it, it reflects uh, exactly on that kind of relationship that we have. Uh, I think we have, we have time for uh, one one more quick question uh, from Andrew Moore. Uh, should Joe Biden win the presidency? What do you think the yes, prospects are? Sorry. Uh, what, should Should Joe Biden win the presidency? What do you think the prospects are for reopening the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem uh, or another diplomatic mission to the Palestinian people? Uh, well, I will uh, I will leave it to uh, Vice President Biden to uh, obviously to talk about exactly what he intends to do. Um, but, uh, I mean, cl- clearly there is, as we've talked about throughout, um, there, there are steps that, uh, that the vice president can take, uh, based on his long standing and deep relationship with, as he'll tell you, um, uh, every Israeli prime minister in back to gold to my ear, um, even when he doesn't uh, agree, it's that long standing relationship and the friendship that he has, um, with the Israeli people uh, that that I think make him uniquely well situated uh, to address these these kinds of questions, understanding that he and Prime Minister Netanyahu um, aren't necessarily going to agree all the time, um, but that that the the disagreements come as friends, and uh, and that there will be um, that there will be honesty and, and candor in the discussions, um, which is exactly what you expect in uh, in in any in any friendship in any any discussion that you have uh, with your friends, so I, I am of all of the the issues that uh, that I've I've gotten to know Joe Biden uh, uh, and his positions on uh, the U.S. Israel relationship is one that uh, and 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 the need to to uh, to be engaged, take steps toward uh, toward promoting peace and and recognizing. Um, the importance of bringing party the parties together. Uh, that's something that I've heard him talk about and I've had conversations with him about literally for decades uh, and will be um, uh, most, most confident in his ability to, uh, to succeed and strengthen the relationship, to do it uh, in a way that ensures bipartisan support, uh, that respects differences, uh, but, that also, um, uh, but that also looks for ways to, to come together and, and, and work together as as the U.S. and Israel have, and frankly, as Democrats and Republicans have historically on this issue uh, until recent efforts um, to try to politicize it. All right. So um, I, wish, I wish we could do this for another hour, but uh, unfortunately, that's all, that's all the time we have for questions today. Um, so thank you. Thank you again so much, Congressman Deutsch, for taking the time during um, this difficult, uh, busy moment to, to speak with us. Uh, and I'm going to hand things back over to uh, our board chair, Susie Gelman. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Chairman Deutsch, very much uh, for sharing your insights with us today and for your leadership in pursuit of a Jewish, democratic, and secure Israel and a continued strong U.S.-Israel relationship. Uh, Once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. 
Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. And again, if you've not already done so, please consider making a contribution at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Uh, Ted, you noted there was a very robust chat going on during this call. Um, a lot of back and forth, which frankly I find encouraging because I know people are passionate about these issues. And as Michael noted, we had so many questions we didn't have time to get to, but we want to respect your time. Um, thank you all once again for joining us today. Our next Annexation Watch briefing will take place at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, next Tuesday, June 9th. We'll be hosting Alex Fishman, security commentator for Israel's Yediot Achonot newspaper. Registration information will be made available on our Israel Policy Hub website at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash hub. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Until then, be safe, be well, and once again, Congressman Deutsch, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Susie. My pleasure. Thanks, Michael. Thank you.